Yeah, that's why I find a kinship. I find a kinship with the chapter. But he, here's one of the things that he notices. He says that there are basically these two parties that are starting to form in society and specifically in relation to the church. You've got the one party on the one hand that says the plague is infectious. And then you have this other group of people who say it's not infectious. Now, you might think, who on earth would say that it's not infectious? So it turns out you have this group of people who say, because the plague is a judgment of God, it's not infectious. So they say, you can't get it from going out and being around people. They think that you get the plague um, because you've lived a bad life or because God is bringing judgment upon you. And so you might have... 10 people in the same room and one falls ill and maybe even dies. And so these people would say, this is a judgment from God. This, they, they couldn't avoid it. There's no way to avoid it because this is God. They've been hanging out with Job's friends. Yeah, they've been hanging with Job's Yeah, they've been hanging with Job's friends. And so that's one group. And he's got to address that, right? If, you, if you're in a, let's say you're in a church and you have people who think that, um, you're not a trained scientist, but somebody's got to speak some sense into what's going on. So theologically, he talks about the fact that, yes, plague is a judgment of God. No, that does not mean that it's not infectious. So you can actually have it both ways. And he says that it is infectious. We've seen it. You have groups of people where it spreads from one person to the next. And so he, you know, he, says, um, he says that. So he spends the first part of the book dealing with that. And then the second part of, the, of it, he, he argues that um, what should you do should you flee? Because remember, they don't know if it's a miasma in the air. They don't know if it's spreading from person to person like leprosy. They don't know 100% how it's happening. So the, he has to face down this question where when the plague comes along, people in the city flee. Where do they flee to? They go to the countryside. They go somewhere else. They get away from the city because they think everybody's getting it in the city, which they are. So he says, is it ungodly to flee or to withdraw from society? Um, and he basically says each person, uh, he says he denies that each person should abandon the station where God has placed them. Um, but he does think that there is a way in good conscience for people to withdraw from society. So um, I won't run through his arguments for the fact that it's infectious, the fact that it spreads around. Um, but he also talks about this group that has a real problem with the people who withdraw. They judge them. So here, I'm going to read you just a, a selection, and then I'm going to read you the arguments they make. Um, you'll see familiarity here because they clearly break down into these two groups. You've got the people who are cautious, and he calls them fearful, and he doesn't say that's wrong, actually. He says, you've got this group of people who are cautious about the plague, and then you have the people who are cavalier about the plague. And he actually says, a pox on both your houses. We need to actually be sensible. Um, basically, he says, if you have responsibilities, don't neglect those responsibilities. If you have a family, don't abandon your family. If you're a public civil servant, he says, don't abandon your post. You're needed now more than ever. But he says, if you don't have someone who depends on you and you're not needed where you are, he says, it's not a sin to flee for the hills. It's not a sin to get out of the way of harm. And he gives examples in scripture where God's people are in danger and they escape. They go somewhere else where the danger isn't. He uses David as an example. Um, 
But here's what he says. He says, there are some who without exception find fault with withdrawing from the plague and therefore consider it a nefarious wickedness, although they think that those who remain ought not to be reckless. There are on the other side those who hold that every man, as soon as the plague comes, ought to look out for himself and withdraw, having no regard or very little regard for the fellowship and duties that Christian charity commands. Now, for my part, I disagree with both of these. So here are the arguments that they make against the people who leave. So that you say the people leave and they make all these charges. He actually lists 13 charges against the people who withdraw. Um, he sa- it says they allege this. First, it's a folly to fear death, right? It's, it's foolish to fear death. You shouldn't be afraid to die. Um, second, he says, and this is not what Beza believes, but this is what some people are saying. Second, no one can be a temperate person who flees death because it proceeds from an excessive delight in life. In other words, you like living too much, basically. Um, third, no, no one is a just man in the time of plague who provides for himself by flight. If you run away... Then, then you're not a just person. You're not a good person. Um, fourth, he does not render to God or man his due. In other words, you, you owe it to everybody to stay there. Um, to these arguments, they add others drawn from Holy Scripture. So here's one of the biblical arguments they make against not fleeing. Uh, these people don't think highly enough of the providence of God. So you don't believe enough in the providence of God. That's why you're withdrawing. That's why you're running away. And he takes that argument on and he says, actually, even though you believe in the providence of God, you also believe that God does things through intermediaries, right? He uses secondary causes to do things, right? Um, uh, He says, they distrust God. They don't believe in his promise. I will be your God and I will be the God of your seed. And he basically says, just because somebody flees from plague doesn't mean that they don't trust God. Uh, uh, number number seven, they're devoid of all charity. Uh, they don't have natural pity or affection. So this is an accusation that you ran away and you left all of us basically and you don't care about anyone else but yourself. Um, and he, he shoots that down as well. He says, they tempt God according to the example of the Israelites prescribing to God the manner, time and place and means by which he could save them. Um, number nine, this is one that, I don't know, it just feels like People could still say this today. They do not love God from their hearts because loving earthly goods, they neglect heavenly ones. Uh, Number 10, they fear death too much since they set themselves against the will of God, which is always good. Uh, They think themselves stronger than God and that they can escape his hand. Um, They openly break the law of Christ and nature by which they are commanded to do to others as they would have done to themselves. And then 13, they do and teach that what no Christian has done but what was often customary by the heathen. So the heathen run, Christians aren't supposed to run. And he goes through and shoots down these claims. And specifically, he, I'm going to just read how he answers a couple of these. And I know I'm taking longer than usual with this, but I also know that we only have a little bit of Isaiah to read. So uh, we have Isaiah 53 and that's all. Um, he says their fifth and biblical claims also are not true, right? What's the fifth claim that they make? They don't love God. They're longing for earthly things. They neglect heavenly ones. And, and his summary here is uh, one must not immediately think that anyone who flees death doesn't love God, right? Just as on the contrary, not everyone who longs for death must be accounted as one who loves God. So it doesn't make you more godly that you run into danger, and it doesn't make them less godly if they flee from danger. 
That's the argument that he makes. Just because someone is afraid or fearful or doesn't want to get sick, look, there are people that are counting on them. There are people that uh, need this person to stay healthy, right? They have families that depend on them, right? So if they flee from the plague, that's not bad. They have good motives. They have good reasons why they're doing it. And he says, but the only one who counts as loving God is the one that while obeying the will of God with right reason and good conscience prepares himself for whether he is about to suffer or avoid death. So the question isn't whether you suffer and the question isn't whether you avoid death. The question is, do you prepare your soul for it? That's what a godly person does. Are you prepared one way or the other, whatever happens, whether you live or whether we die? Um, He also says this. And uh, he's, he's basically defending those who take the cautious approach. He says, we need to state the same point regarding the fear of death, namely that if this fear rests upon a good reason and keeps within proper bounds, not only must it be condemned, but in fact, it must be approved of as a guardian of life implanted in us by God. So in other words, it's natural for us to do things to preserve our own life. This is the way that God created us to be. He created us not to be reckless. He created us not to just, you know, run headlong into danger. Um, And then he talks uh, about the fact that um, withdrawal is a chief natural precaution during contagious diseases. So he says it's completely reasonable uh, for somebody to say, hey, if I get sick, if I come near, I'm going to get sick. And he also talks about those who by age or declining health can't help others. He's basically talking about people who are physically infirm for one reason or another. And he says that uh, if they were to remain, they would only seem to stay put that they may die with great loss to the commonwealth. In other words, it doesn't do anybody any good to just to sacrifice people left and right if their death can be avoided. Um, he says, it's the commandment of God, you shall not murder. Therefore, neither their own nor the lives of any belonging or depending on them are to be thoughtlessly put in danger of deadly infection. So in other words, um, he really just talks a lot about the fact that God uses secondary causes. He uses secondary means in order to accomplish his will. He talks about the need of people to take medicine. He says that Christians oftentimes will pray for the end of a plague, and yet they will not avail themselves of medicine when it's made available. And he, he talks about the fact that oftentimes that is actually God's answer to the plague, is there are doctors, there is medicine. Uh, now, their idea of medicine, I don't know how helpful medicine in the Middle Ages actually was. I don't know if I would take a, a concoction in the 1500s to heal me. Uh, but he does say, look, God gives means, and we should recognize that oftentimes medicines are a gift from God to help us. Um, he says, I do not see how any serving in public office may flee their charge in a time of plague. So, yeah, not everybody is allowed to do this. You have duties. You have responsibilities. Uh, he certainly says it would be shameful for a pastor to leave. Um, he also says a husband, maybe whose wife has the plague, the husband needs to stay with her. He needs to care for her, take care of her. Same thing for a parent with their children and a child with their parent. Uh, if, if your family members basically need to take care of each other. Um, he says also, though, those who continue to do their duties must not cast themselves heedlessly into the risk of infection. So he's really, if you think about what Bayes is doing here, he's actually a really balanced guy. He doesn't want to go off the deep end one way or the other. 
He doesn't think that those who throw themselves into danger's way are more godly or are more thoughtful or uh, love Jesus more. Uh, But he also doesn't think that those who uh, live in complete fear and abandon their posts and abandon their responsibilities are in the right either. So in in Bayes' mind, he's he's really being a, a balanced individual towards these things. He actually talks, though, about how he gives an example from his own life about how he had the plague. He was sick with the plague. He was in his home. And uh, he, I'll just read what he says here because he's talking about a story. John Calvin came and visited him. So he says, this contempt of God's judgment, I tolerate less. Oh, he talks about those who are cavalier about the sickness and throw themselves into the sickness and put themselves in harm's way intentionally, basically. And he says, they have contempt for God's judgment. They don't take seriously the weightiness of being judged by God. So they, he actually says that taking precautions, being careful, is a sign of respect for God. Because you recognize how terrible it would be to experience his judgment. And then he says this, this contempt of God's judgments, I tolerate less than I do the excessive weakness of the fearful. In other words, the people who are fearful... That's a problem. We shouldn't be fearful people. We should have a godly perspective on our suffering, on what we go through. But he says, I have even less toleration for the people who are just like, who cares if we get sick? Um, He says, but how others are affected and disposed in craving the presence of their friends, I do not know. In other words, people get lonely when they're sick. Uh, People get isolated. People have to wait it out. And it can be a very long, long trek He says, when I myself was visited with the plague 28 years ago in Lausanne, several of my friends wanted to come to me. And the one that stands out beyond the rest is Pierre Viret of Blessed Memory, who was prepared to come to me. And also John Calvin himself brought me every kind of kindness by a messenger sent with letters. But I did not permit anyone to come to me, lest by the great loss of such great men, I would have been thought to have provided for myself through loss to the Christian commonwealth. So... He's like, sorry, guys, you can't come in and see me. If you died, it would not be good for the church. Uh, yeah, John. Uh, when it, the, the section on abandoning your post, especially in the medical community, contemporary, what we find during uh, plagues is in the U.S. and the West as a whole, people in the medical community will stay at their post. They'll take the risk. They'll do their job. And they'll take care of people. India and what happens in their hospitals is an interesting contrast in and that their medical community typically will trip over themselves to get to get out of Dodge and let hmm. people just basically rot. So it's a different approach and it's all based on our Christian heritage. Right? Well, we haven't said this, I haven't said this very much. I don't know if I've said this at all, but we have nurses among us yeah. online here and we really appreciate doctors and nurses we don't, we don't say it nearly enough. Larry? You know, some of those same arguments touching on the sovereignty of God and the judgment of God were used in arguments about buying and using lightning rods. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Lightning rod is a way of avoiding the judgment of God. <laughs> yeah. I buy a lightning rod because I take the judgment of God seriously. If he wants to blow up my house, yeah. I'm only one chapter in, but I found that really helpful. Um, 
You know, it is easy for Christians to develop a narrative around people who think differently about sickness than them. Now, what we've been going through is not the plague. You know, it's not killing a fourth of the population. But those who are getting it are seriously ill. We have people in our church who are very seriously ill. We have um, nurses in our church who work in the ICU, and they know firsthand how miserable it can make people. Uh, And we have some folks in our church who would tell you, you don't want this. Uh, I've gotten it. Um, That still doesn't mean that nothing in here is applicable or going to be helpful to us. Uh, Just because we don't have the plague doesn't mean we don't have a plague. Um, We do. And so there's a lot to think about here, a lot of theological reflection. I don't know what's in the rest of the book. I haven't read the other chapters, but I do trust the reformers. And even though I probably wouldn't go to them for medical advice, I would go them to them for biblical advice, right? Uh, he's got a great little section in here about the miasma. And he basically says, um, one of the arguments down, never mind, I'm not going to go into it. It's too convoluted. But I'll pass this around. You can look at it, take a peek at the names of the chapters, see if it's interesting to you. Um, There is an appendix in here that is written by uh, Cyprian of Carthage. Cyprian of Carthage lived through a really awful plague. I don't know if they actually know exactly what the plague was, but um, in his own writing, he talks about people's intestines coming out of their bodies. Uh, I don't know what that is, but it sounds like the worst thing I've ever heard. And he has a reflection on mortality that they put in as an appendix. And I started reading it last night and uh, I got too sleepy and I had to go to bed. So I didn't get to finish it. But I found it really mature, a very mature reflection upon death and upon preparing ourselves for what eventually is going to come all of our, our way. So mature stuff in here. It's not easy reading necessarily, but if you're willing to push through it, good book so far. So, Yeah. Uh, I, by the way, I really wish it had been written two years ago. It would have been really handy, but um, these guys, uh, it just came out. Yeah, it wouldn't have sold. It would have just sat there on the shelf. When are we ever going to need this thing? Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so it's called Life in the Time of Plague. I remember listening to Faith in Time of Plague. mountain castle and then when they came back into London uh, a lot of them didn't have any peasants to do any work for they ended up having to do their own work yeah. to even eat society got thinned out a little bit I guess yeah, <laughs> because yeah. They, they killed a lot of uh, English people you know well we have uh we have uh, enough time to look at one of the more important, I think, okay, actually all of Scripture is important, all of Scripture is breathed out, but that doesn't mean that uh, I don't get excited about some parts more than others. Uh, Isaiah 53, if you have your Bibles, just open Isaiah 53. We're just continuing on from where we were last week. We're finishing up. Uh, it's funny, we actually spent more time on that book than we did, uh, than we are going to in the passage today, so... Um, Last time we looked at Isaiah chapter 6, we saw Isaiah's uh, encounter with God in his, in his holiness and how terrifying it was for him, what a mortifying experience it was to be in the presence of God. 
And uh, now here we are, we're in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 had a very profound impact on me as a non-Christian. So as a non-Christian, I was reading apologetics works. And one of the passages that it felt like the apologists always seemed to, to direct you to was Isaiah 53. And um, Isaiah 53 struck me as a passage that must have been put there by Christians. It just seemed like something that Christians would have written it. And it was hard for me to believe that it, it would have been written by a Jewish person. And in fact, my best friend Josh Walker was in downtown Phoenix. Uh, and at one point he met a Jewish person. And this person, you could tell they were Jewish because they had like the, the whole outfit. This was like an Orthodox Jew. And he was talking to this Orthodox Jew and he says, have you read the book of Isaiah? And this Orthodox Jew said, yes. And he said, well, do you remember Isaiah 53? And this guy said, I don't remember that exact passage. And Josh said, well, let me read it with you and let's talk about it. Who do you think this passage is talking about? And he read Isaiah 53. Uh, I'm going to read just a selection from it. Uh, and then just know this, that after he read it, this Jewish person said, that must be in your Bible, but it wouldn't be in my Bible. And Josh said, I promise you, you go find your copy of the scripture and you will find this passage in your Bible. And sure enough, you know, of course, the man, I don't know how the story ended, but he definitely went home and found this in his Bible because it's in the, the Hebrew scripture. <laughs> um, but Isaiah 53 is this uh, other servant song. It says, for who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And just even if you stopped here, you would be like, this is just Christianity. This is just, this is just what the Christians have been saying, right? Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I read it fast. There's a lot there, but holy moly. Yeah, Charlie. Sure. 
And you said you were going to read us a selection. <laughs> <laughs> well, I looked at it. It was only 12 verses, so it didn't feel like very much. So, yeah. Um, that does sound like Christians came in and stuck it in there, doesn't it? It just sounds like we snuck in while the Hebrews were sleeping and tinkered with their copies of the scripture and then ran out of the room. But that is not how textual transmission works. Um, no, this is in the Hebrew scriptures. This was in the older, old copies that are older than Jesus himself. So when we look at a passage like this, in, in like Isaiah 53, we have to appreciate the multiple levels of meaning. I mentioned, I think last week, this idea of double fulfillment. On the one hand, this is a prophecy that speaks about Israel as God's servant. They're about to suffer, to be exiled to Babylon, crushed to almost nothing. Uh, The temple is going to be thrown down. The walls are going to be broken. This is still about 100 years out at the point that Isaiah is writing this. And he's, he's saying, he's picturing Israel as this individual who is suffering for the good of the world. And yet it would be difficult to read every, everything in this passage into Israel as an entity. It's very difficult to read this and entirely read it as not being about the suffering servant who comes. So when you think about double fulfillment, sometimes the second fulfillment is actually stronger than the initial fulfillment. Um, and I think that's certainly the case here. Um, a few things I want to point out. There's this idea, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. This is what we call penal substitutionary atonement. Penal means punishment. So in other words, someone is punished in the place of another. And that's, that's exactly what Isaiah is talking about here. There's this individual who's going to be punished in our place. And because he gets punished in our place, we go free. So one of the most helpful passages when you're talking about Jesus, the atonement, what he did for us. How is it that I, a sinner, am able to stand before God and talk to him and have peace with God? This is a passage that explains that. Um, it's hard not to see uh, the cross here. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Um, You also have the Old Testament speaking of his hands and feet being pierced. It's pretty remarkable. Once you piece it all together too, just of course it was Jesus the whole time. Um, But they still have to see it. Um, It's hard to read this without thinking about Jesus who was forsaken by his friends. He was whipped. He was was striped for our sins, killed within and struck within an inch of his life, hands and feet pierced so that we could go free, treated by God as if we never sinned before. One of the most remarkable sections of scripture here in Isaiah 53. Um, Those things that Isaiah talked about have actually been accomplished. That's what's so beautiful and so remarkable. Yes, any comments about this? Yeah. Um, What might they have thought was the initial fulfillment of this? They would have said it's Israel. They would have said Israel is the fulfillment. Uh, Some people think that it's Isaiah's son, that Isaiah has a child that this son might be the one that he's talking about as the servant. Um, wow. So, I mean, you have to do a lot of work. Yeah. Why is it in past tense? What's that? Why is it in past tense? Uh, why is it in the past tense? It's not all in the past tense. Yeah, some of it's past, some of it's present, and some of it's future. Yeah. So, like, yeah, for example, it says... 
Uh, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall be and be satisfied. So there's a forward looking and there's a backward looking. Um, but it's a good question. You know, why is it written in the past tense? I think prophetically that it's probably because I think when Isaiah is writing it, he probably is thinking of Israel. But even for Israel, it would still have been in the future tense. Yeah. Well, when it says it was the will of the Lord to put him to death. So you could say, well, look, God from all eternity had been planning for Babylon to come, to take, to take them away, to drag them into exile. So that could be part of it. Um, but I also think that when you come to the prophetic books, oftentimes there is a forward-looking aspect to it. There's a backward-looking aspect to it. So it's not entirely incoherent to think of this as a, as a future future event. I think it's just a timeless passage because you read it and you feel like at once you are Israel back there waiting for this judgment to come. And at the same time, you look at it, especially from the perspective of the cross, and you think, how could I not see Jesus here? And so there's something beautiful about the past, present, and future tense all being here in this passage that sort of makes it entirely coherent to anyone who's reading it. Um, I don't know. Does that sound like a dodge? That's, I'm trying to, trying to think about how, how that, that happens. Um, I like the last part of verse 12. That's the, he makes intercession for the transgress, transgressors. I love that it's not in the past tense. Mm-hmm. He makes. He makes intercession. He bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So the bearing of the sin takes place at a certain time, at a certain place, in a historical moment. And his intercession for sinners, for transgressors, is ongoing. So that's why I just think, prophetically, it's like, ah. if If you resist the idea of Jesus being the Messiah, this is just one of those passages that just kicks you in the teeth and makes it really hard to not believe, I think. When I, so when I was the, when I, so the way that I came to faith in Jesus was the weirdest, most probably boring to some people, but like, I just read apologetic books. I just read arguments and specifically I was interested in whether Jesus is the Messiah. I thought if Jesus is the Messiah, then I don't have to keep looking at all these other religions. I don't have to wonder about Islam. I don't have to wonder about, uh, well, actually even Judaism, right? Because if Christianity is true, then Judaism is true up to a point, (laughs) Um, and so, and also I grew up in Christianity and I was surrounded by it. So it made sense for me to sort of, uh, what's the word? I wanted to rule it out before I went on to some other religion. I was really hoping it would be like Buddhism or Hinduism because that felt really hip, but, uh, I don't think so anymore, (laughs) but at the time at least. And, uh, also it just appealed to my scientific mind. But when I was reading, so I was reading like, um, I think I read The Case for Christ. Who's read The Case for Christ? Is anybody? Was that John McDonald? Or? No, that was Lee Strobel. I, I, read, I read The Case for Christ, as, and that was the first book that I read about Jesus. And after I read that book, I was entirely open, open to learning more. But I remember there was one chapter 
where uh, Lee Strobel sat down and he interviewed a scholar. I don't remember. I don't, don't remember who it was. I don't remember if it was uh, William Lane Craig or somebody. But anyway, he was interviewing him and he just like took him to, to Isaiah fifty three and just hammered this passage. And they spent so much time there. And and I just remember afterward thinking I got to read that for myself, and then reading it for myself and just being shocked at the content. And I was very close to being persuaded to follow Jesus after I read that. Um, but, you know, it's weird. I, I don't know a lot of people who got argued into the kingdom of God. I'm like one of them. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and. I would be interested to read a, a, a Hebrew commentary on this text. If I was a Jewish person, I would try to only read this as not a forward-looking thing. I would try to read it as a telling of Israel's sufferings and the meaning that came out of their sufferings. That's how I would try to read this. But they're still thinking that <clears throat> that Messiah is, hasn't come yet, but will come. My understanding is Jewish people do still look forward to a Messiah. There might be some who have gone in a different direction in their thinking. Maybe they don't expect a Messiah to come. Or in a lot of cases, they actually will name different people instead of Jesus that they think fit the bill and were the Messiah that they were expecting. Um, There are several rabbis uh, in history that they go to, and some of them will say, yeah, this was he was a fulfillment. Um, So that's the way they they cope with it. Uh, And that's how I would cope with it if I was really trying to avoid Jesus. Um, I would not read this forward-looking because it, too, it looks too much like Jesus. If I was a Jewish person, I probably would try to find a different way around it. But maybe they do. There are probably some who do look at this and expect someone else that fits the bill that isn't Jesus is going to do it someday. Any other questions about Isaiah 53? Well, instead of, instead of uh, letting you guys out late, maybe I'll just let you guys out a little early and we can go and wait in the children's classrooms. <laughs> We could just like stand there and like, because <laughs> I, I was going to actually get us to Jeremiah this week. And then we just talked so much about the plague book, but I just, yeah. Anyway, we got, we have freedom in here. It's great. We don't have a curriculum we have to follow. We can just be free spirits. It's great. Um, well, let me pray for us. Heavenly father, we thank you for your word in which you reveal yourself to us. Specifically, Lord, we thank you for This prophecy in Isaiah, this prophecy by which we see not only Jesus being foretold to us, but where we see Jesus being set before us in all of his glorious work, in his sacrifice for us, in his bearing of our sins, in his removing your wrath from us, in his taking the place of sinners and letting us go free. God, This is a passage of glory and grace. We thank you, God. We thank you for your kindness to us of coming to save our sorry race, that you would set your eyes upon us and that you would look at us unworthy as we are and you would say, I will die for them. I will lay my life down for them. God, we're unworthy. We're unworthy of something this glorious being done for us and yet you've done it. 
And so I pray that we would rejoice in that this week, that we would carry these truths with us, that we would teach them to our children, that we would tell strangers about them, God, that we would, that we would meet our neighbors and that we would be willing to, to say to them, have you heard about Jesus? Would you like to study him with me? Um, make us courageous to open the word of God with other people. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.